Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're going to be in Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. And Jesus here is still continuing his teaching, teaching that began in chapter 15. In fact, this is really another one of those unfortunate chapter breaks. I understand why they had to do it. You're breaking stuff up into smaller chunks. But really, this seems like part of one big block of teaching that goes all the way back into chapter 15. In chapter 15, Jesus is addressing, at least that's the way it begins, with him addressing the challenge of the scribes and the Pharisees who are questioning his decision to eat with and to welcome tax collectors and sinners. That chapter ends with the prodigal son story and just kind of ends abruptly at the end of that chapter. But chapter 16 opens with, now he was saying also to his disciples. And so chapter 16 flows directly out of chapter 15 and begins to address specifically some things related to his disciples, kind of about the topics of and the situation in chapter 15. Chapter 16, in the middle of it says, Jesus returns to challenging the Pharisees again because they're scoffing at his teaching about money and possessions. And then this chapter, chapter 17, opens once again with, now he said to his disciples. And so it seems like chapters 15, 16, and 17 here all go together as one big block of teaching that bounces between addressing the Pharisees and scribes then his disciples, back to a challenge from the scribes and the Pharisees, and now back to his disciples once again. So I think we should take all of this material together as some sort of whole, and that suggests to me that Jesus' opening words here about stumbling blocks in Luke 17 is motivated by what happens in chapter 16. And in chapter 16, as well as in chapter 15, the Pharisees are the ones who are presenting stumbling blocks. In chapter 16, they're scoffing at Jesus' teaching to his disciples uh, about putting the kingdom of God first and using their resources in ways that are faithful to the kingdom of God. In chapter 15, the Pharisees are really trying to impede the scribes or the tax collectors and the sinners from coming to Jesus and are putting Jesus down for welcoming them. And so, they, the Pharisees, are presenting a stumbling block to Jesus' disciples and to those who are gathering around Jesus. So after addressing them and their bad ideas about wealth, Jesus now returns to addressing his disciples about being stumbling blocks. And so chapter 17 opens with these words, Now he, Jesus, said to his disciples, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It is better for him if a millstone is hung around his neck and he is thrown into the sea than that he may cause one of these little ones to sin. And so what we see here in verses 1 and 2 is the seriousness of being a stumbling block. Jesus says it's better for someone who becomes a stumbling block or puts forth a stumbling block to tie a millstone around their neck and be thrown into the ocean. He says that's better than leading someone into sin. Uh, causing someone to stumble and sin uh, is worse than drowning with a millstone around your neck. A millstone was a large round disc stone with a hole in the middle 
that was usually pulled by a donkey or an ox and was used for grinding grain. Larger ones could weigh hundreds and hundreds of pounds. So being thrown into the ocean with one of those around your neck is better than causing someone to sin. And that really just says to us, this is how serious being a stumbling block is. This is how serious it is to cause someone to sin. Jesus uses the descriptor, little ones. He says, it's better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around your neck than to cause one of the little ones to sin. Well, what's, what does he mean by little ones? It doesn't mean little kids. That's important. Often we can read that in our first, oh yeah, you shouldn't cause a little kid to sin to sin. That's not the primary thing he has in mind, however. It refers to lowly ones, like Lazarus in the preceding parable, or like the tax collectors that started the conversation in chapter 15, or the poor and the outcast and the lame that are mentioned in chapter 14. It's the lowly, the marginalized, the ones who are on the outskirts, the ones who don't have any status, who don't have any clout, who don't seem to have any importance even by the religious people of Jesus' world. In Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 9, this very word refers to those who are the least among them, the littlest ones. And so in context, the ones who keep presenting stumbling blocks are the Pharisees and the scribes. They're the ones trying to keep the lowly ones from Jesus and keep Jesus from them. But the way the warning is stated here, it's stated broadly to any and all of us And Jesus is actually addressing disciples when he says this. And so what he seems to be saying is, don't be like that. Don't do things that keep people from the kingdom. Don't do things that lead others away from Jesus and into sin. Don't present stumbling blocks. It's better to be drowned than to do that. Now, what happens if your your fellow disciple does sin? In fact, what happens if he sins against you? What do you do then? Well, that's where Jesus goes next. And so he says, verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And so here Jesus shifts from, all right, don't present stumbling blocks, verses 1 and 2, but what happens if somebody does sin? Particularly, he says, what if your fellow brother sins? Your brother is your fellow disciple. So here, within the community of disciples of Jesus, what happens if your fellow disciple, be it a he or she, be a brother or a sister, what happens if they sin? Jesus says, rebuke him or rebuke her. And if he or she repents, forgive him, right? Like So if your brother does sin, challenge him, call him out. And if he accepts it and receives it, confesses it, then forgive him. The logical connection here with the warning about stumbling blocks appears to be this. What if a stumbling block happens, and what if our fellow disciple sins? What if he sins against us? What do we do then? And the answer is, forgive him. Forgive him or her. And so, on the one hand, watch out for stumbling blocks. Don't be one. Don't present a stumbling block. That'd be worse than drowning. But on the other hand, be gracious and be forgiving to those who do sin. Notice that uh, forgiving isn't the same as sweeping sin under the carpet. Pretending like it's no big deal, like it's not a bad thing or it's a wrong thing by by sweeping it under the carpet is not what Jesus has in mind by forgiving. Notice what he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That forgiving 
is not opposed to rebuking. And so be forgiving does not equal pretend like no one did anything wrong. It's really what theology professor Miroslav Volf says, describes as exclusion as and embrace. And naming sin for what it is, that's the exclusion part, and then granting grace to the one who confesses it, that's the embrace, exclusion and embrace. We rebuke sin and say, that's wrong. We, as the people of Jesus, we don't do that. And then when they say, I shouldn't have done that, I'm sorry, and they confess it and repent, we welcome them back warmly with an embrace. So the fellowship of disciples is to be a place where sin is called for what it is, and it is called out as contrary to who we are. That's not who we are or the way we do things. And it's also to be a place where grace and forgiveness is readily and freely granted when those who do go against the way of Jesus uh, repent and come back. In fact, he says, notice, seven times a day. Like, if that happens seven times a day, and the force of that seven isn't, well, once he hits eight, I'm done with him, right? That's not the force of seven. Seven means as many times as is necessary. Seven being one of those biblical numbers of completion, right? Like seven days of creation. In, in other words, as many times as is necessary, you just grant grace, you forgive. And so here you have two things in these first handful of verses you have two things that kind of almost stand in tension with each other. On one hand, you have the seriousness of causing someone to sin. And on the other hand, you have the readiness to forgive repeatedly and regularly. And as Jesus teaches this to his disciples, they're like, oh man, that's a tall order, Jesus. So how do they respond? Well, here's what they say. When they hear Jesus teaching this, they say, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. That may sound like it comes out of the blue, but it really doesn't. Jesus' teaching motivates it. The disciples recognize that being mindful of stumbling blocks, as well as not being a stumbling block, and at the same time, always being ready to forgive their fellow disciples, they recognize that's serious business, and that doesn't always come naturally. And so their reaction is, we need more faith to live this way. Well, Jesus is like, no, no, you don't, actually. It only takes a little bit. You don't have to be a great saint or have great faith to live this way. Jesus, in verse 6, says, But the Lord said, you, If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The mustard seed is frequently used in Jewish teaching to refer to something very small. And the black mulberry tree has this massive, large root system, making it very, very difficult to uproot. So the point of the imagery is that it only takes a very small amount of faith, like a mustard seed, to do what Jesus is teaching, even if it seems very difficult to you. It only takes mustard seed-sized faith to live this way, to not be a stumbling block, and to be ready and willing to forgive. Jesus continues in verse 7, really all the way from verses 7 to 10, and he continues with an illustration and then a point. And as we continue reading, we need to ask the question, well, how does that illustration and that point fit with what he just said? Let me read you verses 7 through 10, and then uh, we'll make some comments here on it. Jesus says this in Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. Now, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, after he comes in from the field, come immediately, recline at the table. 
No, on the contrary, he will, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. Afterward, you may eat and drink. He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which were commanded, you say, we're unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, the question, as I noted, is how does that connect with the preceding stuff, particularly what Jesus started to say in verse 6? And a lot of commentaries make no effort to see a connection, surprisingly to me. They just almost take it as a completely separate topic or a completely separate teaching. In fact, a lot of translations will do that. They'll put a subject head here or they'll make a break in like the paragraph here. But that just that just seems too random to me. There's no break. It's still the same conversation. In fact, Jesus started talking in verse 6. He doesn't stop again until verse 10. So in some way, verses 7 through 10 connects with verse 6 and is part of Jesus' reply to the disciples about needing more faith to do what Jesus had said. So how does it connect? Well, here's, here's the connection as I see it. Living like Jesus taught, that is not being a stumbling block and being ready and willing to forgive those who sin against you, living that way is, isn't doing anything extraordinary. It's just doing what you're expected to do. It's just part of being a disciple. That seems to be, that's really the point Jesus makes and seems to be how it fits in here. Jesus is saying to the disciples, when a community of my disciples treats sin like this, and when they forgive like this, you haven't done anything spectacular. You've only done what you're supposed to do. The disciples react to Jesus' instructions by saying, this is too great for us. We need more faith to live this way. And Jesus is like, no, tiny faith like a mustard seed is enough. Remember, you're my servants, and to do this is just doing what you're expected to do. And so Jesus tells this illustration in verses 7 through 10 to make the point of, you're my servant. You're my servant. This is what I expect you to do. So it's just what you need to do. And if you had a little bit of faith, you could do it. So let's just hit a few of those details then out of verses 7 through 10. Now, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he comes in from the field, come immediately recline at the table? In other words, no one's going to have their servant do that, right? Like their servant's just doing their job. They've gone in, they've taken care of the, the sheep, uh, they've taken care of the field, now they've come in and it's time to uh, set the table. So no one is going to do that for their servant. In fact, he'll just ask his servant to keep doing his job, right? When you're at work, um, you know, you're just expected to do your job. That's the way it goes, right? Well, that's the same thing here. On the contrary, verse 8, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, Clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And then afterward, you can eat and drink. In other words, get cleaned up, put on your house clothes instead of your work clothes from outside, and get yourself cleaned up, uh, get my meal and sit down for a meal. When I'm all done, you can go have your meal. He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which he was commanded, does he? Jesus is just pulling from everyday life. It's everyday life they were familiar with. This is what they knew. They knew how it worked. If you if you're a servant or if you had a job, if you had work to do, you just went and did your job. You took care of your responsibilities. Then when you were all done, you could actually sit down and eat and drink. He's not going to get command uh, thanked for doing what he was told to do, is he? No, of course not. Well, and then Jesus applies the illustration to the disciples 
who seem to think that what Jesus is telling them to do, avoid stumbling blocks, don't lead people into sin, be gracious and forgiving, they seem to think that's just too far beyond them. And Jesus is like, no, 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 it's not. And so he applies this farming illustration, the servant illustration, to his disciples. He says in verse 10, So you too, when you do all the things which were commanded of you, you simply say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done that which we have ought to done. When we follow Jesus' commands, the specific ones here about being avoiding stumbling blocks and forgiving, as well as all the other things Jesus ever commands, we're simply doing our job. We're simply doing what we're supposed to do. And so Jesus tells us, so you say we're unworthy slaves. We've only done which we ought to do. In other words, he seems to be combating this idea of the disciples who are like, oh, if we did that, man, we would have great faith. We would obviously be great followers of yours, right? No, you're just being an average, ordinary servant when you do that, doing what you're supposed to do. And when he, when he says, say we're unworthy servants, it's really important we hear that the way Jesus intended it, unworthy doesn't mean worthless, especially in the total context of Jesus' overall teaching, right? It never means worthless. Jesus doesn't think his servants are worthless. It means not deserving the honor of being his servant. We're humbled and honored that we get to be his servant. And so we gladly do what he tells us to do. That's the idea that, man, we, we don't deserve this honor of being the servant to King Jesus, but we've been given this honor, and we're just humbly and grateful uh, that we get to be that. And so we just gladly do what he tells us to do. That's the force of it. And so when we've done what King Jesus tells us to do, we're just grateful that we've gotten to be his servant. Now, what are some implications of that? Let's just reflect on this section as we kind of wind down this section. Just a couple implications. One is sin and grace. We live in the tension between the deadly seriousness of sin don't be a stumbling block, right? Don't sin. And the readiness to give grace over and over. That's where we live. And so we need to examine ourselves and examine our life and take sin seriously in our life to make sure we're not being a stumbling block. And at the same time, we're always ready to give grace uh, to those who, who sin, even those who sin against us. The way A.W. Tozer used to say it is, be hard on yourself and easy on others when it comes to sin and grace. Another implication of this section, it seems to me, is just the old line, the old pair, trust and obey, trust and obey. We don't need great faith to do what Jesus calls us to do. We just need a little faith, just enough to have confidence in Jesus, to trust that he knows what he's talking about, that he's smart and wise, and then just to set about doing what he said. And if we find it's difficult, then to figure out what we need to do to learn how to do it trust and obey. And so we just start doing the next right thing, putting the, the next foot forward, right? And doing what Jesus asked. And so we set about making sure we're not a stumbling block. We set about granting grace to those who sin. We set about forgiving those who sin against us, right? And we just keep trusting Jesus and doing what he's asked us to do because we're, we're just grateful that we get to be his servant and do the things he's called us to do.